Today's guest has written many plays seen on and off Broadway over the past 45 years, including Little Murders, Knock Knock, Grown Ups, The White House Murder Case, Elliot Loves, and A Bad Friend, and one of his short plays was the basis for the Passionella segment in The Apple Tree. He achieved all this while creating a weekly Pulitzer Prize-winning comic strip for The Village Voice for 42 years, in addition to writing screenplays, novels, and children's books, among his many other endeavors, which include, most recently, a memoir, Backing into Forward, published earlier this year. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and it gives me enormous pleasure to welcome Jules Pfeiffer. Thanks for having me. Jules, as I said to you before we started, you've done so much. We are a theatrically based show, so we're we're going to skip over enormous swaths of your achievement. Let me start by asking in your youth, when did you come to theater? Was theater something that was always present in your life? Well, I was brought up in the Bronx and um, and was terrified when I was a kid of just about everything. And one of the everythings I was terrified of was travel, particularly getting on subways and going downtown and going to Midtown. And, and so I am not aware – I have no memory of ever going to a Broadway house when I was a boy. But in the Bronx, um, well, about a half-hour trolley ride, and I wasn't afraid of trolley rides from my house, was the Windsor Theater, which was um, one of those stops on the way to touring plays. Uh, they, they opened in the Brighton, you know, Windsor Play left Broadway and went on the road. Right. So people understand, plays actually toured That's from right. Manhattan to the Bronx. And they toured with, uh, they tried to get the stars and many of the same cast. And they would start with the subway circuit, as they call it, in the Brighton Theater in Queens and the Windsor Theater in the Bronx. So that's where I saw Death of a Salesman. That's where I saw Streetcar Named Desire. That's where I saw Ethel Barrymore in the Corners Green. And uh, much of my early theater going was was in the Bronx going to those plays. And I was already in love with theater. Now – I mentioned this in my memoir, Backing Into Forward, that my mother um, loved theater, and she introduced me to the Sunday Times drama section, as it was called then. It was before it was Arts and Leisure. And, um, and theater was a pretty lofty enterprise in those years, and, uh, and the, the lofty, loftiest representation of it were the front-page caricatures of Al Hirschfeld, who later became a friend of mine but was a hero to me as a kid. And glamour was personified in those Hirschfeld drawings. And glamour was personified all through those Times drama pages where you saw all of these stars, very, very prettified, all sitting by their pool as they talked about putting on – with Leland Haywood and Mary Martin putting on their next big bonanza. And, and it was you know, way beyond the, the wildest dreams of a Bronx boy. But going to the Windsor uh, put me in touch with a form of um, – of art that was foreign to anything else I knew. I loved movies. I loved old-time radio. I loved comics. But there was something more personal about theater, something more intimate, closer to reading a novel. It got at your insides in a way that none of these other forms that I loved did. Yet you pursued a career initially that was based on illustration. And indeed, you referred to drama as lofty. You went to work for Will Eisner. I mean, comic books but, but were, were low. It, it's a mistake to call illustration. It's words and pictures. Okay. And theater is words and pictures. Movies are words and pictures. It's all words and pictures. And um, and and I don't see much of a difference um, in terms of the effect you want. But the the approach to each of these forms is very very different. But um, but it's not simply words on paper. Something is happening. And that something that is happening has to be integrated with what is said. And as a boy, I began to understand how to do that by my work with comic strips, studying how the great cartoonists of the time integrated dialogue and visuals, how they knew how to shut up from panel to panel, how you um, told the story without saying anything, how you told the story by being very witty and sharp, how you said things while meaning something else. 
this early education came out of another form, which was comics. Hmm. With the comics, certainly there was a particular style of drawing that one adopted. You apprenticed under Will Eisner, wrote The Spirit, now recognized as one of the real creators of, of the genre. Um, when you moved into doing your own cartoon work, you really veered away into a very different line for what you were doing. As you say, story, dialogue was still there. But did you have to consciously break away from from the way you'd been trained to draw? Well, it was different from a comic strip. and the, the newspaper strips at the time, and that's what we're talking about, a form that is almost dead now. Um, but uh, newspaper strips used to be four panels across the page during the week, and they would run anywhere from five to seven columns. They were big then, and they could get in a lot of dialogue and a lot of story. And the Sunday pages were full-size, so that now on a Sunday page, full-size, you see anywhere from – six to eight comic strips, there would be one. So you, there was a lot of time, a lot of space to de- for development. And it's studying those masters, Milton Kniff, who did Terry and the Pirates, Al Cap, who did Labna, others, uh, and Eisner certainly with the, um, in some ways the most theatrical uh, cartoon of all, his spirit stories. And when I worked to, went, went to work for Eisner, I was already a student of his form of storytelling, and so I was a student of a kind of theatricality. Why? What was it about his strips that were theatrical compared to the others? Well, he, he in fact, was in love with the stage, and his father was a set designer, and he had he'd been to a lot of theater, and um, um, and he introduced a form in comics, which I must say I borrowed from him, um, in which a character at the beginning of a story would step center stage and start speaking a monologue to us, to the reader, to the mm-hmm. audience. And then he would dissolve into the story. Uh, and later on, movies would do the same thing. You remember Fred McMurray and Double Indemnity staggering wounded um, up in, into his office, going mm-hmm. up, turning on the dictaphone, as they called them, then picking it up mm-hmm. and started talking to Edward G. Robinson Keyes and started telling the story as he faced us, the audience. He was the he, he was telling us, he was controlling how the story was told. Eisner preceded Double Indemnity by doing that kind of technique over mm-hmm. and over and over again. And through him, I learned the use and importance of monologues and how um, you could go back and forth with that form in and out. When I started my strip, um, I was attempting to do something other than to tell stories of suspense, stories of action, or stories of of a middle-level young people's audience. I was simply out to tell stories to grown-ups and to tell satiric stories to grown-ups and to make points about Cold War America, to make points about uh, the, the post-Korean generation, the emerging uh, action in Vietnam, civil rights. So I was uh, – I had other things in mind and serious things in mind, the emerging sexuality in terms of the open discussion uh, in, the, in the prints and on television and elsewhere. I had other things to say and I didn't think a story was the way to say them. The way to save them was in dialogue between couples or monologues, and that's what I did, and that was my early form. And to do that, unlike the comic strip, I had to freeze the camera. So all of these forms take a lot of pre-thinking. You know, what's the best way? It's all about telling a story. If I'm writing a play, how do I tell the story? What's the style? What's the approach? If I'm writing a screenplay, how do I tell the story? Same thing with the children's books. All of these forms are very, very different, but at root, is it's the same thing. Uh, how do I tell the story that I'm trying to figure out how to tell and I don't even know what it is yet? It's interesting that we refer to the strip and I the only reason I even would call it a comic strip was because that's what it's referred to as in your book because I don't think of it as a comic strip and for those who don't know it, you weren't bound by the by a num- certain number of panels that you had to fill. In fact, you rare you didn't have panels. You no, had but I had uh, space. I just took out the panels, but yeah. I. Uh, but you could have six, six or eight drawings, eight, yeah. eight drawings, um, you know, and you would tell 
whatever the short narrative was right. within within the space that you had, but you could use it freely. The choice to then move to where your dialogue and your stories had to become collaborative, namely theater. How did that happen? Well, there were all sorts of ways it happened. Uh, uh, but first, I'll start with an anecdote, which is true, which is when, when <laughs> well, I truth is good. <laughs> when, 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 when I began the strip, and after it started gaining the, the attention of the New York um, literary community, and I'd be invited to these parties, and uh, and these writers at, at all would say, "I love what you do, that column," and I said, "Comic strip," and they said, "No, no, no." Uh, that, that it's much more than a comic strip, and I said, no, it's a comic strip. It's a cartoon. No, no, it's a lot more. It's a, it's an essay. It's a, it's a column. It's a, it's a play. That's what it is. It's a little play, because intellectuals could not admit that they liked a comic strip. It was, <laughs> it, so they had to upgrade it. They had, they had to social work it into a form that uh, that was worthy of their attention. Well, I heard this so often that uh, it amused me. I mean, I knew what I was doing, and I knew it wasn't a play. And um, But what I found a little less amusing is when my first play, first full-length play opened, Little Murders on Broadway, the critics, uh, many of them said, well, this isn't a play, it's a FIFA cartoon. So uh, uh, while my first play, Little Murders, was a flop on Broadway, I finally gained validity as a cartoonist. <laughs> but, but, but the way I got – it was Paul Sills in Second mm-hmm. City that recruited me onto the stage. Sills had invented Second City, he and some others, first as the Compass Players in Chicago and then later, uh, once they got out of the University of Chicago, was Second City in a little house on Well Street. And Second City had gained a lot of attention. It was doing extraordinary work. And, um, and I had been to Chicago a number of times because I was associated with Playboy and, um, and spent a lot of time at Second City. And Sills flew to New York at one point and said, we're going to open up a theater next door called Playwrights at Second City. And we want you to be the first playwright. And we wanted you to do an adaptation of the cartoons for us. So I was thrilled and honored and flattered and excited. Uh, I was going to work with people I knew in um, in a city that I loved and out of New York so they couldn't get at me. And, um, and we worked very hard on this, putting the strips together. And uh, at one point, Sills said, um, I just realized these, all these cartoons run any, anywhere from 20 to 40 seconds, which makes for a very quick <laughs> and, and, and staccato-like evening. We need something longer. Can you write something longer? So I went back to New York, flew back to where I lived in Brooklyn Heights at the time, and overnight wrote my first play, a one-act play called Crawling Arnold. And, um, and it took me maybe, I don't know, 14 hours, 15 hours, and I just took off. And it was very different from what I was doing in cartoons. And I didn't know what I was doing. I just had an idea and started to, about, about a family who had a 35-year-old son who reverts to crawling when the, the parents who are 70 um, start, are going to have another baby. The mother is going to have another child. And this is mixed with politics and going underground for underground. Uh, 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 there were air raid tests at the time, and we will, this was back in the early 60s. And you were expected to take shelter. And so it's got to do with all – it mixes politics. It mixes race because there's a black maid who everybody patronizes. And it's very, very funny. And I took it back to Sills, who – my first play. I loved it. And he read it, and he said he didn't like it. He didn't want to do it, so it never went in the show. Now, I later thought, actually uh, actually this morning I thought, that one of the reasons he may have actually decided to pass on it is he liked working with his own cast. And there were no black people in the company of Little Murders, and this and a very important part here was of a, uh, uh, the black maid. Hmm. Um, but whatever the reasons, it never played. But that was my first play. Now, this was the Explainers, if I'm correct. That was the Explainers. Yeah. Now, when the Explainers opened in Chicago, to pretty good reviews, mixed but good. Um, the person who liked it least was me, because I thought these cartoons were better on paper than they were on stage, and that they were an approximation of what I was looking at, of what I was trying to do, of what I was hoping for. On stage, and but on paper they were the real thing, and it wasn't the real thing. Hmm. And I and I was discouraged with the process, and I thought, well, if I'm ever, uh, 
going to write for the theater. I'm going to have to write. It's not, I'm not going to do an adaptation. But at that point, Mike Nichols came along and said he wanted to bring the show to New York and do another version of it. And he recruited a, a, a young friend of his named Sondheim. And, um, and the three of us put together bits and pieces from the original explainers, one of the pieces being Crawling Arnold, which Mike directed and did brilliantly. It was the first direction Mike was doing, to my knowledge, in the United States. I think he had directed up at Stratford uh, one or two plays. But he was not known here as a director. It was a Beerfoot in the Park was going to be done about a year later. And um, and it it was – as opposed to the Sills experience, this was quite marvelous. Uh, again, I felt the cartoon material didn't hold up as well as the work of Nichols or Sondheim. Sondheim did a version of Passionella, which was just glorious, and I have some of those songs. And um, But uh, that was my – First experience working with real theater people and working in collaboration. But you didn't let – that was then the world of Jules Pfeiffer. That's right. And you let it come close to New York, but it never came in. You let it go as far as the Huntington Hills Playhouse. The Huntington Hills Playhouse was the one and only place that it played. It was produced by Lewis Allen. It starred Ronnie Graham, uh, who played the plot of Arnold in Crawling Arnold and did many other things. In addition, I had a wonderful company of actors. Paul Sand from Second City was the only Second City member in it, and he was glorious. And um, and much of what they did I loved. But uh, as I say in the book, I felt so overwhelmed and so unlegitimate being connected to this enterprise where I saw Nichols do this dazzling work and Sondheim write this dazzling score. And I thought I was – at the, at the bottom of the ladder here in terms of importance. This, name had, this show had my name on it, and I thought I was contributing the least to it. And, it. and stupidly, I wanted out because I thought that it was not legitimate. I mean, that hmm. they were, but I wasn't. And that if I was ever going to do be in the theater, I would have to come in with something that started out as a play and was going to be a play. So how did you feel – when Passionella was part of the apple tree, you obviously gave permission for it to be adapted, yes. but you'd worked on it yourself. You well, say no, the I, score I didn't, I didn't work on the production at all. No, you'd worked on the earlier version yes, with Mike yes. Nichols and with Steve Sondheim. Yes, but this was a very different one. This, mm -hmm. one, this was this was not with Steve, but with Bach right. and Harnick. Of course. Uh, it had a different book writer. You know, I had nothing to do with the book. Uh, and in fact, um, objected to the way the book was handled in some ways because hmm. I felt that um, – uh, it missed out on the irony and um, um, and toughness of the satire that was in there, particularly toward the actor's studio and Lee Strasberg, mm -hmm. who I was no admirer of then or now. And um, that all that disappeared. The show itself was – I mean the segment was brilliant. Barbara Harris was in it and she was extraordinary. Alan Alda played the character of Prince Charming, flipped the Prince Charming. He was brilliant. Uh, the score was great, and um, and if anything, I like the revival that was done a couple of years ago even better with Kristen Chenoweth, because uh, because there I got a chance to beef up just a little bit the book. Hmm. Interesting. So you've had a couple of experiences which were unsatisfactory. You saw one of your stories adapted successfully, though at the time not entirely to your satisfaction. How do you come to Little Murders? What then but, but, said, but, I'm going to go write a whole play? But let me go back okay. a bit to New Jersey. Mike was working for the first time as a director. Mm -hmm. He was doing Crawling Arnold. Um, he was talking to the actors. And I listened and I marveled and I saw the beginnings of what was going to be this extraordinary career. And at one point – he was working on a scene and he came over to me and he said, would you mind leaving because I want to work on something that I don't want you to see until we've got it done and then I can want you to come in and run it for you. So uh, I left and about a half hour later or, 40, or an hour later, he invited me back in and he ran this scene and unfortunately I can't remember anything about it or what it was. But I do remember my reaction which was astonishment. It was absolutely wonderful. It was word for word from my script, but what was done with it was so unlike anything I had in mind and such an improvement 
over what I had in mind. And yet, true to – it wasn't the director taking over. It strengthened the point I was making. It strengthened the content which was mine. But the embellishment was so organic and so extraordinary. I, I said, Mike, where did this come from? And he just pointed to the script. He said, it's all in here. Hmm. And that, to me, is the nature of collaboration. Over and over and over in the years, um, I have been in wonder and enthralled by what actors can bring, what directors can bring, um, what just about anybody, the set designer, making notes, uh, 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 talking casually about things. That, 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 that how everyone works together and if you like the piece – if you were involved with the piece, if it's just not another thing you're doing to make a buck, but you were, you were emotionally involved and want it to be as strong as you can get, what people contribute is remarkable. And I, and you know, and, and, and the remarkable part of it is it's all mine. I mean, that none of this would exist if it, if I hadn't written it. I uh, marveled when we moved, um, the set of, um, uh, my play Elliot Loves, which Mike also directed, into um, the Promenade Theater on Upper Broadway when it existed. And there was this Chicago apartment building with a little terrace going in. And it was extraordinary looking, marvelous looking, and a lot of money <laughs> uh, for off-Broadway and even a lot of money from Broadway. But that's what Mike wanted. And I sat there marveling at it and said, oh, my God. This was one line in the script, <laughs> and there it was. Well, it is. As I said, you know, when, you, when you tell the story on a page with your own drawings, you control every single character. Yes. You can, you, what appears there is entirely your doing. Theater requires you to bring other people into the process, but it sounds like you enjoy that collaboration. Well, because I know how to do the other. I know how to play with myself. Uh, so having the opportunity to play with others and being enriched by the work of others was, first of all, startling to me and then basically the goal of every play I wrote, that I couldn't wait for this thing to get off the paper and get into the hands of people. Um, I mean, you, of course, have to assume you're going to find first-rate people when you, as I occasionally have, have fallen into the hands of not first-rate people. It doesn't go this way. Uh, now I'm going to ask the question again because you were uncomfortable, you said. You weren't entirely satisfied with those first experiences as marvelous as you found working on them. What was the impulse to then write a full-length play, namely Little Murders? Well, history and what was happening to America was the impulse. Um, between the world of Jules Pfeiffer and the apple tree for that, for, for that matter – uh, the assassination of John F. Kennedy happened. And overnight, this was a different country. And within the next year, you, one began to see, or one should have begun to see, that what was taking shape, which was all forms of authority were beginning to dissolve and break down, and we were no longer living in that pre-World War II, post-World War II, uh, post-Korean world, America, which had changed very little in terms of its values, had very changed very little in terms of its culture. We had moved you – know, the music had moved into rock and roll and swing had gone out. But essentially the attitudes were very much the same all across the board and what was underground stayed underground. But suddenly um, over the 12 to 18 months post-assassination – it became a different country. It was on its way to becoming a different country, and I was waiting to read about this. I was waiting to hear about it. I was waiting for somebody to write about it, and I didn't see it. And I thought somebody has to comment on this, and um, and I guess I'm it. So I try to write it as a novel, and um, and it just went nowhere. I mean, I spent a year and a half struggling with it, and making notes and writing scenes, and um, and in fact. Scenes that later got into the play were written for the novel. The the, the, the judges scene that Lou Jacoby does brilliantly in the movie, um, Reverend Dupas' speech, which Donald Sutherland does brilliantly in the movie, and Paul Denedict did every bit as brilliantly in Alan Arkin's production of the play. Um, the uh, those were written actually for the novel, 
And um, but as I got bogged down in the novel, I went off to Yaddo up in Saratoga Springs to try to figure this out and figure out what I could do with it. And when I reread all the things, all of the writing for the novel, I realized this is impossible. It was just bad, Mm -hmm. really bad. And um, as I say in the book, I walked into town in the middle of February because I didn't drive at the time uh, and um, went to a liquor store, bought a bottle of scotch, took care of that, woke up the next morning. Um, a little hungover and said, I can't be this stupid. I can't have devoted two and a half years to something that's this hopeless. Let me take a look at the original notes I wrote. And I went back and looked at the notes and I said to myself, because I was the only one there to talk to, this is brilliant. Somebody should write it. And the only way I could think of going ahead with it, because I exhausted the other forms and and it couldn't possibly be a comic strip or a graphic novel as we now call them. It, It wasn't right for that the only thing I could think of was dramatizing it hmm. and I immediately thought that if this opens as a play it's going to be killed but it didn't really matter but Robert Brewstein who had then just begun the Yale rap he was the dean of the Yale School of Drama showed an interest in it well that was later after later. I'd written it right. you know, that, was, that, was over, that was about a year later mm-hmm. uh, we were old friends but I wrote the play um, I, I wrote a first draft in three and a half weeks, not knowing what I was doing, but having a ball, loving every moment of it, and knowing from the first day that I was a playwright. Hmm. When I worked on my first novel, Harry the Rat with Women, um, I never knew that I was a novelist. All through it, I was plagued with doubts. I didn't know what I was doing and didn't feel good. I didn't have any fun. The book turned out to be successful. And when you read it now, it looks like I knew what I was doing, but I didn't think so, and I didn't have any pleasure in it. And one of the givens in the terms of the way I work is if I don't have fun, I don't want to be connected with it. Hmm. Uh, you know, it, it it's a success or failure is nice, but I have to have a good time. I have to love what I was doing. And writing that first draft of Little Murders, I was pitched with euphoria on such a high level that I had never experienced it in my life, not with a cartoon, not with anything else. I was in a daze of happiness writing about these mass murders and random violence and the destruction of the country, and I was a very happy camper doing all of that. The irony was was wild. So I read it and – and gave it to my agent, who uh, unfortunately gave it to Alexander Cohn, and who, um, and that's where all the mistakes started to be made. It really should have been an off-Broadway play, but I was the one who wanted to do it as a, as a Broadway play because I was the one who thought I want to do this in front of the audience. It's about I want to affect that audience, and that's what I and that's what my theater going career has always been the hope of doing it in front of an audience who I will drag up on the stage and make a participant in what they are watching to make them part of the company, part of the action, uh, uh, part of the argument that I'm staging, whatever that happens to be. And uh, so I thought that it belonged on Broadway. Um, but of course, in terms of having a chance of success, it never it never had a chance on Broadway. It turned out to be a very bad production uh, with a director who was unsatisfactory, chosen by me, and um, and an uneven cast chosen by that director and and Alexander Cohn and me. I mean, I was complicit in all of the stupidity of it. But the Cohn's. One brilliant choice was to have the idea of starring Elliot Gould in it. And Elliot, from the beginning to the end, was a rock and kept everything going when everything else was falling apart. So that production, which should have been fun, was only fun because it was my first play and I couldn't believe that I was living out this Betty and Adolf land of living in a hotel room and (laughs) rewriting the third act at midnight and – uh, uh, and having bellhops come in, and, in, in the in the Brits Carlton in, in Boston, and uh, telling me they were gag writers and when I look at their work, and I'm just right out of MGM, and uh, and I love that part of it. What I didn't love was what was going on on stage, mm-hmm. and from the beginning to the end, until the last preview before the opening, 
And in those years, opening nights were attended by the critics who wrote their reviews. It was not – they didn't come three days earlier. That that happened later. But by that time, the director was fired, replaced by John Dexter, who was brought in to be mainly a traffic cop to uh, – it was to polish up exits and entrances, to to define the performances enough so that the audience would get an idea of what was going on because they didn't. And at the last preview, before the opening – it all came together. I sat there stunned because I was watching the play I had thought I had written and wondered if I really had. And it was remarkable. It was a remarkable experience. The audience went nuts. Uh, it, it was full of theater people who go to the last preview, who came over to me, some of them friends, some of them strangers, all of them raving. And as they raved, my heart sank because I knew this cast, this company, uh, didn't have – the background, didn't have the rehearsal time, didn't have the experience to do it two nights in a row, and tomorrow the critics were coming. Mm. So the next night, the show was awful, and I walked out and didn't see the end of it. And the only happy experience was that uh, coming back to the play as the audience was streaming out to greet people and greet friends, Leonard Lyons, who was then the columnist of the New York Post, the gossip columnist, and a very sweet fellow who I knew and liked came over to me outraged. And uh, Little Murders was the first play to use the word shit on Broadway, uh, along with words like masturbation and I suppose hallucinogenic. But um, uh, Lennon came over livid and said, and grabbed me by the lapels and said, how dare you use language like this on the second night of Passover? (laughs) So I hugged him and I said, Lennon, thank you for saving my night. (laughs) (laughs) To move forward, the show was not successful. It ultimately ran for five days. It closed that Saturday. That's right. Um, but it was done by the Royal Shakespeare Company, which is extraordinary. It was the first American play they had chosen. It was made – now, I don't have the chronology correct. Was the film before the off-Broadway revival no, the, or no, after? No. The, um, after its success in London and – you, with your experience, certainly know what a London success means to the American. You know, suddenly, over here, they start paying attention in a way that they didn't before. And um, and at the same time, uh, Circle in the Square, then run by uh, uh, Ted Mann and Paul Libin, started looking around for a play for Alan Arkin to direct. Alan wanted to direct a play. Right. Now, this is the old Circle in the Square downtown. Down, down on Bleecker Street. And... Um, uh, down on what we would now think of as a hole in the wall, but that's what Off Broadway was in those years. Sure, and um, and Alan, they sent Alan Little Murders, and he loved it and wanted to do it. And they said, uh, "Would you consider it?" And I said, "Yes, only under one circumstance and one condition, and that is I not be consulted in the casting uh, or anyway, because everything I did it turned out." except for the writing itself, was a mistake, including the revision and cuts I went along with for that first production just because I was talked into it by everybody. And uh, I thought that my uh, stupidity led to a lot of the um, horror that the show eventually turned into. So I just wanted to be free of it and let it give Alan a free hand. So then he told me – they told me – I don't think Alan and I spoke at that point, but um, Ted Mann told me or Paul told me who they were casting. Linda Lavin is the lead. I thought that's a terrible mistake. She's all wrong. Uh, Fred Willard as as Alfred. I said – he said, no, 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 we're wrong. Vince Gardini is the father. No, no, no. And – but I didn't say a word because I was going to shut up about it. Now, of course, all of these people, all of these people were brilliant and it taught me something about casting, which is I was thinking in terms of how, as a cartoonist, how they looked in my head and wanted them to be visually uh, right. But you just go for the actor, dummy. And, 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 um, and Linda didn't look the part. She was the part in every fiber of her being. She just took over that stage as Patsy, and she's the best Patsy I've ever seen. I mean, no, no one has ever come near her ever since. Hmm. And, and just some, for contrast, people should know that in the original production, it was Barbara Cook. It was Barbara Cook, 
who, who had she been well-directed, might have pulled it off. Right. But just, again, to, to illustrate yes. both what, yes. what you say. So it's quite extraordinary that in 1967 you have, forgive me, a Broadway flop, and in 1969 the same play is a big hit off-Broadway. It's and, quite remarkable. And I must say that uh, I'm proud to remember that uh, after the flop, Sam Zolito, who was then the Broadway columnist for the New York Times and sounded just like Jack Levine, uh, and who I knew and liked. We liked each other. So he, he, uh, But he was a Broadway wise guy. And he called me up and he said, OK, Mr. Big Shot cartoonist, you wrote your first play. It's a flop. What are you going to do now? And I said, Sam, I'm going to keep bringing it back until you guys get it right. Uh, because I had a defiance, a rebelliousness, and an anger then that I must tell you didn't last for another decade. <laughs> well, you fairly quickly, after the success of the off-Broadway production, then came the White House murder case. Yes. Which also was Circle and Square, off-Broadway. And Alan and, Arkin. And Alan Arkin, and a cast of... Second City's finest. I mean, well, I look City, at that cast and the committee. Now. I mean, yeah, all improvisational that, that group, but extraordinary. And again, I had nothing to do with the casting. Alan, Alan put it all together, and they were, and some of them I knew. A, a couple like Paul Dooley were friends, um, and it was just a ball. It was, I mean, it, it was perfectly cast and a perfect example of how. Uh, the production was such an improvement on the script, and Alan got me to make some changes. Uh, Originally, everything took place in the White House. There was nothing on the front. There was nothing about these two soldiers in the middle of a war zone in Brazil. The the White House murder case was a satire and a brutal satire on Americans' involvement in Vietnam and, and... and predicting America's involvement from that point on in wars all over the well, globe. Well, sadly, having just read the play again, yeah. it plays everything Everything you were railing against in that play. It's pretty much still going on. And that's what killed the play. The play opened to I – mean, Alan's production was brilliant and hilariously funny, but also very tough and very satirical. And that satire paid off uh, – with the audience, and they, you know, and so much so that the first couple of weeks I went back to the circle was so selling out all over the place. I hated watching it because the audience was laughing at the play as if it were a Neil Simon laugh riot, and they were la- and it wasn't thoughtful laughter; it was ha ha ha. And I'd go backstage and talk to the actors, and they were disgruntled. And I described that as fascist laughter. You know that they are hmm. laughing at the reviews. They're not laughing at the play. They're laughing because they were told to laugh. Yeah, that's right. And I, I told them, you know, you outlast it. In two weeks, it'll be gone. And it was. And the play played happily and very successfully for, I forget, about a month or so. And then and then the story broke about our Cambodia invasion. And all of the things that were pointed out on stage were happening in the press. At the point that satire became real life, the audience stopped coming overnight. And this play, which looked like it was going to run a year or two, ran a few months because nobody wanted to see real life, however funny it was, uh, that gruesomely portrayed. Hmm. It it was fine as satire, but not reality. I don't want to dwell on it, but I have to ask you, in this same period, you contributed to an anthology uh, production which became infamous, uh, which was – Oh, Calcutta. Yeah. And if you were my age, you were told you couldn't go see that and it's dirty and you shouldn't. What's extraordinary now, looking at the people involved, yourself, the fact that it was devised by Kenneth Tynan, the fact that there was material by Samuel Beckett in it, John Lennon, Peter Shickley, Sam Shepard. What was behind Oh, Calcutta. What what did Ken Tynan say to you oh, it was, it, it, in it terms was, of it was putting simply, the material together? It was simply Tynan and his influence. I mean, Tynan was um, the great theater critic of his time and maybe of the 20th century. Uh, he wrote like a dream. He had an insight into actors and acting. He could describe acting 
uh, in a way so uh, it reminded me of the way Edmund Wilson would write about characters in his criticism of a novel. Um, he could tell you what actors were doing. He could tell you um, what was going on inside the play. He was the only critic I've ever read other than Brewstein uh, in his year, early years at the New Republic. And the two of them were about all that was going on at the time in terms of criticism, with the exception of Jerry Tolma, also brilliant in The Village Voice at the time, but certainly not in the pages of The New York Times. I was very fond of Walter Kerr, and he was a lovely fellow, and he wrote wonderfully, but he was uh, – if it wasn't lighthearted, if it wasn't a musical, if it, if it um, tried for something more serious uh, – Walter was going to get pissed off at it uh, and um, and have no patience with it. So uh, Tynan had built up quite a reputation for himself, and when he decided he wanted to do a sexual play, being uh, privately a kinky, rather kinky fellow, uh, um, and, and and done by naked actors, he just called in his chips all of the people he knew over those many years in the theater, and of course everybody. Uh, it's not that everybody wanted to be connected with it. It's just that nobody wanted to be left out. Hmm. You didn't want your name with all these other – you know, if my if Samuel Beckett's name is going to be on that roster and John Lennon uh, and notable American playwrights, God knows I didn't want to be out of it. But also I was at the very same time thinking of writing a play about sex in America and I had an idea and I want – but I didn't know whether I could write the play. And I was going to write the piece that I was doing, the short piece called Dick and Jane, as a tryout to see if I knew how to write the sexual play. And um, and by the time I finished this piece, uh, which was all about narcissism, uh, I thought I can do the play, and that play became Carnal Knowledge. Well, you say the play became Carnal Knowledge. You wrote Carnal Knowledge for the stage. Yes. Mike Nichols said, no, this is a movie. That's right. How- how did you feel about being told it was for a different medium? Well, I love the idea of it being done on stage. But that Mike wanted to do it, I loved even more. And when he said it to me over the phone, I said, give me 30 seconds. And then I said, what about the language? You know, it's got a lot of strong language. Can we get away with it? He said, we can get away with anything. Now, at that time, he was the most important director in Hollywood. Oh. He was a year off the graduate, which had swept the country and the, much of the, much much of Western uh, 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 civilization. Uh, he was very very hot. He was in a strong position to do whatever he wanted. He was just finishing up the editing on Catch Twenty Two. He had me come in and look at Art Garfunkel in Catch Twenty Two uh, to see if I mean he was very deferential in terms of casting all the way through and, and in terms of the production. He wanted my approval on everything, which in movies doesn't happen. In movies, the director tells the writer to go home. Mike brought me in and wanted me in on everything. And we and, and, and when we were shooting it up in Vancouver, he had me – he and I finished the night together having a conversation about the dailies and the day's work. So uh, uh, it's his theater work that made him such a wonderful collaborator on this movie. Carnal Knowledge was an enormous success. It was – written about, spoken about. It's one of a really seminal film from the early 70s. A number of years later, you went back to create a script for it to be done on stage. Well, I, What was the impulse for that? I, I have created the script. I, uh, um, um, I got a call from a man, and, and I hate misremembering his name. I think it was Ted Swidley or Findlay. I forget. Lovely fellow. And uh, he ran a theater in um, in Houston. Um, the stage's we, repertory. Yes, that's right. And um, he had seen the movie recently and he wanted to know if he could take the movie and adapt it onto the stage and I said, that's not necessary. It was a play. And I sent him the play, and he loved the play, and he wanted to do the play. And I said, let me look at it again because you know, so many things have happened. I want to see how I feel about it and revise the script and perhaps take some of the movie and put it in there. So I, but, but 
what I loved was that a lot of monologues, which movies don't like, um, were cut from the, the, the cut from the movie that were in the play, or turned into conversation pieces. And I love the idea of being able to use them. And I also love the idea of being able to enhance the character of Susan, who was the e. Candace Bergen character, and give her a little, her a little more dimension, which was hmm. in the play and other things. Well, he did this play, and I flew out to help the last week, but I didn't need much help. The production was brilliant. It was very much on the level of the movie. I could not believe it. The actor who played Jonathan was in the same league with Jack Nicholson, if you can imagine hmm. that. And um, and so it went down the line. The actress who played Bobby was extraordinary, the Anne Margaret part. And I, it was a joy to watch. Um, and then as these things happen, when they become successes, the Pasadena Playhouse wanted to brought in. They wanted the same director, but they wanted a Hollywood company. And, of course, it was a mess in Hollywood because the only company that was going to work on it well was the one they had that they didn't want. Hmm. So it ended its career right there. Yet that script is a different version of the movie. It's it's a combination of what your original yes, yes. play it, was. And that's very interesting, just that you would go back a number of years later, having had it so successful in one form, and still restore it. Now, we jumped ahead because I wanted to ask about Carnal Knowledge, both the original play, the film... But let me jump back now to Knock Knock at Circle Repertory Company. You talked about, you know, you wanted to take on politics and what you were doing, you know, with the strip and with the plays. Knock Knock has so much warmth to it, in it, it, at least in my reading of it, um, that seemed a little different, certainly, well, it was than, different. than Little it, Murders. It, it was time to be different. But... Um, both Little Murders and Carnal Knowledge, and for that matter, the White House murder case, um, and my second play, which we didn't talk about, God Bless, another political play, were essays. They were out to make a point. I knew the point I wanted to make before I wrote the play. I didn't know how I was going to make it necessarily and how I was going to get into it. But I had in mind the end results before I started writing, hmm. what I was aiming to do. I had reached a time when I decided that was not what I wanted to do anymore. I didn't want to know the end before I started it. I didn't want to design characters who were going to illustrate the points I wanted to make. I didn't know what I was – I didn't want to know what I was going to do anymore before I started writing it. I wanted to be a member of the audience, surprised by what was going down on paper um, as I wrote the script. So um, in addition, um, at the time I sat down to write Knock Knock, uh, I had just left my first marriage. Uh, I had a seven-year-old girl at home. Uh, I was deeply depressed, guilt-ridden, full of who knows what. And I went off to Martha's Vineyard where I have a summer home and decided I'm just going to write a play where I have a good time. I want to entertain myself. I'm going to write just something very funny. And I don't know what it's going to be and I don't know where it's going and I don't care what it's about. I just want to have a good time. So uh, I wrote, it's getting better. And then somebody says, by what evidence? And somebody else says, my eyes are my evidence. And so I was off and and not knowing where I was headed. And suddenly I had these two Jews in a house in the woods, in a fairy tale house in the woods, who had hidden themselves away because they'd given up on life, as I had at that moment given up on my life. And it became, as I discovered by by the end of the first week, I was writing a play about the reinvention of hope when you no longer had it, about the reinvention of illusion when you were illusionless. And so it had a point, and it was about something, but God knows I wasn't aiming to do that. And I loved the point coming out, the theme coming out organically as opposed to, in a sense, in the the third person. I loved it coming out from the inside and from Mm. the characters. And I loved the characters inventing themselves and me just taking stenography. Hmm. I mean, you could almost say that Knock Knock 
you, you could describe knock knock as if it's the start of a joke in a way. Two Jewish men are sitting in the yes, cabin right. in the woods. Joan of Arc walks in. Well, I was, and there you go. I, I, I stole the verbal style from Bernard Malamud's Fiddleman stories. Or so I thought. I'm going back over them. They're somewhat different. But that's who I was trying to channel. Malamud, a brilliant and now, you know, wildly underappreciated great writer of his time, um, wrote these three or four short stories about a, a, an artist, a failed artist named Fiddleman, who travels all over. And, he, and, and it's a kind of Jewish fable, a series of Jewish fables written very much um, in, 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 a, in a kind of Jewish dialect on paper and spoken that way. And that's what I wanted. I, you know, I had hung out a bit with the intellectuals of the Partisan Review and I, and, and I loved the fact, first was shocked by the fact and then loved how much they argued and how they, much life they get out of arguing. I grew up, I thought argument meant death. I was afraid to argue, and I backed away from arguments. And these guys were larger than life and screamed and yelled at each other. And then they went on, and they, nobody was mad at each other. Nobody <laughs> killed each other. Um, and that's what I wanted Conan Abe to be, these PR intellectuals in retirement, screaming and yelling, but loving each other, insulting each other, but loving each other, and going through this fantasy existence where um, – where they are means certain death, and to, so and so, as part of the fairy tale that the play becomes, Joan of Arc comes into the house in the woods to rescue them, to get them out of the house. But they are more powerful than Joan of Arc, and they reduce it to a housemaid. Hmm. Because we have to jump ahead, um, that show started Circle Rep. Very successful, moved almost immediately to Broadway, where it eked out a run. Not much of a run. About four months. Not much of a run. Um, it never worked on Broadway, uh, and I won't go into the nastiness that ensued because uh, some very talented people and good people were involved, and I don't want to personalize hmm. it. But it, it, it never worked. But the last time it was done was about three, four years ago up on Martha's Vineyard. With Bob Dishy playing Cone and Richard Dick um, Libertini oh, gosh. playing Abe. And the role of Joan of Arc brilliantly was played by an actress named Hallie Pfeiffer, <laughs> my daughter, who is um, now in a play that's about to open. Huh. Your friend Bob Brustein yes. produced Grown Ups at American Repertory Theater early in his – the very beginning of his tenure there. That's right. Um that transferred to Broadway? Yes. Were you happy with how that production went? Uh, it, again, not not commercially, but were, were you pleased with the experience? Oh, well, John Madden was the director there. Mm -hmm. And I got John through Bob. Um, John had directed at the ART Arthur Copet's brilliant play, Wings, which started out as radio drama. And then, it's about uh, to be revived here in the, in the city by Second I, I, Stage. I, I, I'm thrilled by that. It's a wonderful play. And and it's good to see you know Arthur back uh, 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 doing this sort of thing. Uh, he's a very old friend, and and um, the um, and it was Bob's idea to get John Madden, and uh, and John was an extraordinary choice, and he had a great understanding and feeling for the play, and I can't imagine anyone doing it better. And we had a wonderful and joyous production of it, and then Manny Eisenberg and Mike Nichols came in, and they wanted to produce it on Broadway. Um, and certain cast changes had to be made, but Bob Dishy was in it from the beginning, and Jenny, Jennifer Dundas, who was a little girl at the time, uh, and played the little girl, who was based on my daughter Kate. And um, and now, of course, she's a brilliant actress, uh, having done any number of extraordinary things, and 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 uh, and at the moment is uh, is recording the voices for a small film that's being made on of, of Pfeiffer dances, my dance pieces hmm. on, on film, and Jenny Dundas is doing the the, uh, the voiceovers. Hmm. Again, I'm skipping forward, but I really want to ask you about Elliot Loves. I was very struck when you talked about, at the beginning, um, that in the comic strips, Will Eisner were, would have a character come forward yes. and speak to you. And Elliot Loves begins 
with an extraordinary monologue that literally I was laughing as as I read it. I'd not had the chance to see the show. The show certainly turns dark as it goes along. It is not the the laugh a minute that 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 opening monologue suggests. You had a great cast led by Tony Heald and Christine Baranski. The cast was unbelievable. Um, and David Hyde Pierce and Ollie Platt. I mean, just a remarkable company. And Christine Baranski. Yeah. No, it was just terrific. But ultimately, it was not a commercial success. It, it, it was uh, – it drove me – out of the theater. Well, I was gonna, I was gonna quote you from from the book. You know, I swore I was through with theater. I would no longer indulge myself as a pro bono playwright. I had mouths to feed. I had pride to feed. Never again. Yeah, the the production that Mike did, I felt, and others felt, was so extraordinary. And the buzz it created up at the Promenade Theater, you know, for the two and a half or three weeks of previews we're in. Um, I've had plays in previews before, but seldom have people stopped me on the street and started to rave about what they saw last night or two nights ago. Over and over again, I was stopped by people who had seen it the night before because it was happening in my neighborhood, Hmm. the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And it just had that feel about it and that buzz about it, you know, this building and building and building. And everybody talked about the inevitability of the success of this. It was extraordinary. Uh, and um, until the critics came and uh, and Frank Rich in the New York Times reviewed it as if it were carnal knowledge too and not the play it was. And uh, well, Frank had loved Grown Ups and said some wonderful things for which I'm internally grateful. He got this play wrong on every possible level and so did others. Uh, and I said at that point, screw it. I can't – you know, I've got mouths to feed. And I, and as much fun as this is, I can't write these plays and go on ha- knowing that the response to what I think is a fine piece of work is is more likely to be negative than not. So I quit, and I find, had to find another form that I could be obsessive, as as obsessive and happy about as theater. And I just fell into purely by accident. Uh, children's books, which I loved every bit as much and continue to. But then um, almost 10 years later, Andre Bishop came along and said, we want you back in the theater. If we offered you a commission, would you accept it? And I said, tomorrow. (laughs) And uh, so he gave me some money. I knew immediately the play I wanted to write because it – I forget what at the time was happening that made me think in those terms, but it seemed appropriate for the time. And I wrote a bad friend, you know, which was partly autobiographical in terms of the people involved. That that, that for years I had wanted to write about this man Emil Goldfuss, who I knew back in Brooklyn Heights, who uh, I read about also in the memoir, who um, was a uh, retired photographer and. Um, a charming but rather seedy character, you know, sweet, and um, and hanging around with all these Brooklyn lefties. And then we wake up one day and see his name on page one of every newspaper in New York. He was a top Russian spy in the United States. And uh, and his name was given as Rudolf Ivanovich Abel, which turns out not to be his name either, but, but that's another story. So th- what that meant to us in terms of being young people, full of beans, very sure of yourself, very sure of your politics, very sure of what's going on, having not a doubt that you are right and everybody else is wrong, and then you discover how wrong you are about somebody who's who is right there in your midst. And so I wanted to investigate the the, the, the theatrical possibilities uh, of of that plus a time of plus a family of Jewish communists. I come from a family where my older sister was a communist, and the the mother in that play. Uh, is based on her uh, and extraordinarily played by Jan Maxwell in the production at the Lincoln Center. I find it interesting that you had a self-imposed 10-year hiatus, exile, what have you, from the theater. You come back and write what was possibly the most explicitly personal play you'd ever written. 
what made you brave enough to after after the disappointment that it sent you away to be willing to write something so closely based on your life and your family? You know, here's the stuff I don't understand. I don't know what brave means. People tell me about the memoir that how did you manage to do that and say those things? And I don't know what they're talking about. Uh, in whatever form I work in, you simply say what's on your mind or what's the point. You simply tell the truth as you have figured it out or why bother. Uh, and um, and if I had done any less, then there would have been no point in doing it. Hmm. Why go back into the theater in order to lie or to tell a half-truth or to tell an almost the truth. And, and so, you know, in a long time ago, I decided this is uh, uh, not about success and fa- or failure. If it were, I wouldn't be in this business because I've failed far more than I've succeeded, except that it, it, commercial success, in the end, it turns out, is not what I do, it's not what I'm good at, and it's not what I care about. I have to make a living, and I do make a living. And, you know, compared to most others, I make a very good one. But it continues to be a struggle. It always has been. And I'm 81, and I still have to worry about the rent next week you know, and still have to go out and make that money. But I'm having a ball. I am uh, as happy doing the work now as I ever have been and still trying to figure out how to do it. What's next? What's the best way of approaching this? Well, then let me ask you as the final question, what is next for you in the theater? Is there an Well, I've wondered uh, for, a, for a couple of years, maybe even three, I don't know, I was involved with Andrew Lippa trying to do an adaptation of um, my first children's book, a novel called The Man in the Ceiling, an autobiographical book about a kid who wants to be a cartoonist. Andrew brought it to me. He was in love with it, wanted to write the score, and um, and talked Disney into producing it and um, and the, the first couple of years it went magically and everybody loved everybody else and then that's what happens with these productions sometimes happens and uh, it went from being emo- an emotional high to somehow uh, getting overtaken with notes and uh, and changes and it whatever it had in the beginning which was a spirit and excitement and, and reactions to the early readings that was sensational, um, lost all of that. It finally, uh, I finally decided to walk away from it because, in fact, everybody was hoping I would. And and um, uh, and now it's in limbo. Andrew still talks about doing it and wants to do it himself. We'll see. And is there any other theater on your mind? Well, there just hasn't been time. I, you know, theater is very much on my mind. I've been thinking about trying to write a new play. I have no idea what it would be about. But I just um, – it's no longer for me, when I think about writing a play, it's no longer the act of sitting down and writing it that's the cause of the excitement and the pleasure. I mean I love that part. But what it's really about is sitting in a big room when rehearsal is going on and watching these actors go to work on my stuff and the give and take of a production. I just adore that. And that's what I miss. I miss it a lot. I love working with Jack, Jerry Zaks, with my last director, on um, on a bad friend. He said to me before we started, he says, "Oh, oh, are we going to fight? We never had a fight." Hmm. Well, I must say that in an hour, we barely touch upon all that you cover in the book, backing into forward. I rarely make editorial comments at at the ends of these interviews, but I really want to say to the people who listen to this program who are theater practitioners, go and look at the plays of Jules Pfeiffer because there's some great plays there that need to be seen and deserve to be seen again. Jules Pfeiffer, thank you so much for being with us today on Down Well, I'm Center. delighted to have this chance to talk about this work I love. Thank you. Thank you. 
Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Tim Whitney. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from AmericanTheaterWing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theatre Wing and also be sure to check out our YouTube channel. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, please remember that we are a not-for-profit organization and consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.